0: Wow. That was powerful. Thank you, Jaden, for your ministry and for using God's gift of words and language, language to speak solid truth and to uh, form a gratitude in our hearts for the death on the cross that gave us forgiveness of sins. Appreciate that. Thanks for your passion. And I would thank you for your obedience. Could I, I would imagine that the thought came to you Maybe I should do this for offering and uh, the prompting of the Spirit. You may have fought it. I don't know. I know I do when those promptings come, but you obeyed whether you fought it or not, and I appreciate that. It was a powerful ministry. Well, good morning. Good morning. So, I echo um, Kevin's greeting that it's great to see you here on the very first February of 2023. So, on our communion Sundays, we try to do things a little different. As you know, I usually study a book of the Bible um, during our regular Sundays, and then just to change it up a little bit, to keep us on our toes, to, to keep from things, things getting monotonous. We change the order of our service. We have our praise after the message. We celebrate communion together. And so I've been praying about what to do for a Communion Sunday series. And I toyed with the idea of maybe just continuing on with Revelation, the book of Revelation. I kind of want to get through it. It's an an intense book. And I thought, well, why not? But um, I have a reason for making a change. And I'll explain that to you. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we want to hear and learn what God has to say through the teacher or the preacher that wrote this book for us. And the reason is because the study of Revelation is laborious. You almost have to learn uh, apocalyptic literature to really understand. It's hard enough sometimes to understand what things of the Lord, but this just gets more complicated with symbols. Uh, It's very intense. It it relentlessly draws us into the battle. It's a constant reminder of, of the fierce war that rages in the heavenlies and that here we are at peace and we're having this service, the sunny service, and, 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 um, and yet in the heavenly realm, there's so much activity going on right now. There's such a battle, intense battle between good and evil. God is bringing all of His purposes uh, to the surface and everything is being just kind of pulled along by the sovereignty of God to be consummated in the great victory of Christ. And so Revelation kind of brings us up there and it's all from heaven's perspective. And so I wanted to um, preach a series on something that's a little more down to earth because it it just keeps us up there and it's so intense. So I thought, what what, what can we do or learn about this more down to earth so we don't have to stay in that elevated uh, mindset all of the time? I wanted to do something that just kind of reminds us of the the importance of the decisions that we make every day in life. Uh, The thought processes, what goes into our minds when we have to make decisions. Whether it's a career decision or a decision about faith or obedience and things like that. And so I've landed on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I, I landed on this book because I was looking for some material, reading through scriptures, and I read the very final verses of the book Ecclesiastes I'll share with you. There's 12 chapters in the book. The last two books is the conclusion in the last two verses, and he says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it's interesting we have the end of the matter from the perspective, heaven's perspective of revelation. It's the end of the matter. This is what's going to happen. And we will all face the throne. We'll all face judgment. Uh, And and yet this is the end end of the matter from a more earthly perspective. Uh, The teacher, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wrestles with things more on an earthly plane, not so much the spiritual plane. Uh, he reminds us and he, He's going to teach us how important our thinking is, how important our decisions are, and even what happens when we go off the trail. And he goes off the trail with His thinking. He goes off the trail with His pursuits when He tries to make sense of life. So it warns us about all that all the things are headed to God's courtroom, just like we are warned in Revelation, and particularly chapters 4 and there's no escaping that. Life does matter. There is accountability. And so, his conclusion in this book that we will go through is that the bottom line is, if you were ever wondering what we should do with our lives, and, and in essence, he's tried everything else, what we should do with our lives is fear God. It's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. In a sense, I've solved the problem for you because I have tried everything else. That's the absolute most important thing that any human being can do with their lives. It's why God gave us the gift of life. It's for us to live it in fellowship with Him. To live all the gifts, to behold all the beauty, to enjoy life, each other, all of creation and our Creator. That's why we were created. And the absolute worst thing we can do is live a life that does not do that. To live a life that does not honor God or fear God as the one and only true God. Or to live a life that does not walk in accordance with His commandments. So Ecclesiastes is written with the end in mind. It kind of fleshes out the middle. So if Revelation is what happens up here, then I see Ecclesiastes as fleshing out the middle. And the preacher or the teacher or whatever your version calls him, is going to share how that works, and he's going to use personal testimony. In essence, he's going to tell us that I've tried a lot of things. I've pursued a lot of things in life. I I really wanted to understand the meaning. And so, that's why I've entitled this series Middle Earth. Now, I don't want the Lord of the Rings fans to get too excited, because I've redefined it. Um... It's not the Middle Earth of Lord of the Rings. And don't get mad at me. Just hear me out for a second. It will make sense. So it's not the, it's not the, the extra continent or the other continent on the Earth. But think about the term Middle Earth. It's, it's the dealings here. It's more coming from what uh, the ancients or how the ancients understood how the world worked in, in, in um, most faith and mythology and so forth We understand that we are here now. We live in this world. This is where our life is. But there was the belief and there's something that exists under us in another realm and there's something that exists over us. So uh, the thinking basically is underneath of us is Hades or the pit and different religions and faiths have different words uh, for this. But you die. It's the place you go where you die. And that's always described as underneath the earth. And then usually you have the heavens, the place where you go and perhaps live forever. The place where maybe that's um, where we find eternal peace. And that's always described as something above us. And we find that not just from ancient thinking, but we find that in Scripture. Scripture teaches us and describes often death or darkness as being Uh, below. You don't want to go to that place. You want to go up where there's light and where there's peace. So our basic existence takes place, at least for here and now, on this earth. This is where we do life. This is where we hammer things out. It's where we hammer our decision out of where we're going to spend eternity or whether we even believe in such a thing as a God or eternity. A scripture will tell us that there is a place that every soul will rest or will go after this life. So it's in that sense that I am describing this as middle earth It's kind of sandwiched between heaven, hell, or, or what's up above, the light above and the darkness below, however we want to look at that or describe that. It's mid-earth, it's where we do life. So Ecclesiastes teaches us about Middle-earth, if you will. And it does so in a very unique way. Because what it does is approach life as if there were no God. It's what, what do you do and how do you find purpose and meaning as if, if, if there is no God or as if God didn't exist. And the um, author will use the word everything under the sun. And that's a very important phrase to understand because he's looking at life, he's pursuing life, he's trying to figure things out as if this is all we have. It's just what's under the sun. It's, there's nothing above the sun. There's nothing over the sun. There's nothing that uh, we're accountable to. There's no place we're going after we're not going there um, after we die, it's more. We hammer things out here and we go below. So he's reasoning life. What if there is no above? What if there is no heaven? What is there? It, what if there is no God? And he's trying to work this thing out, this life out, because if there is nothing up there that uh, approves of us or disapproves of us, nothing that we will face, then how do we find meaning amongst ourselves? Why are we even here? And what is the purpose for all this? If... And if there is no higher purpose, his conclusion will be that, frankly, it's just all meaningless. You can't find meaning if there is nothing else outside of us that exists. If there's nothing that's greater than we are. It's it's all vanity, 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 meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Now, some of you, and hopefully most of you, will actually have a hard time with this book. Because he takes that approach as if there were not, as if there is no God. And Sunday after Sunday, you come here and learn, you're pounded with, there is a God. And he is important. And we are to do everything under his sight. We are to live our lives. We are to think our thoughts. We are to pursue our paths all according to what he says is good and right. Because we love him and we want to bring him honor and glory. So you might struggle with this this teacher approaching life as if what's it matter? What's it matter if I'm kind to my neighbor or not? What's it matter if I go to church? What's it matter if I buy into this thing that that people of faith buy into and try to manufacture meaning and purpose? He's going to drag us into his arguments. And so I want you to try not to put up your red flags immediately. And we're going to read this this chapter 1 in just a minute. And you're going to be like, "Uh, he's got it wrong. He knows he has it wrong. He's taking this approach. Every once in a while in this book, he does talk about God. And so you'll see where he's coming from. But he doesn't always give us that uh, answer or that intention. So we'll get a little bit more out of it, I think, if we just join him in his thinking. Join in Join him in his pursuit of trying to find meaning as if there is nothing else above us. So let's look at the first chapter here and dip our toe in this book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, All is vanity, and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly. I perceive that. This also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And that's pretty much the tone of the book, all 12 chapters. And I know you're thinking, uh, sounds like Eeyore wrote it, right? I mean, it's like nothing but bad news and, you know, thanks for finding my tale, but I'm probably going to lose it again anyway, kind of thinking. And that's the mindset here. However, uh, there was one fam- another famous author that had a different perspective. And that's Herman Melville, the author of the, the classic book Moby Dick. I don't know if you watched that movie or read that book. I, I've watched it as a kid. So he says, um, he calls Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. And here's why. That mortal man who has more of joy then sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true. Not true or undeveloped. With books the same. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows. And the truest of all books is Solomon's. And Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. All is vanity. All. This willful world hath not gold have, has not got hold of unchristian Solomon's wisdom yet. So he recognizes Solomon's looking at the world through an unchristian way. But in essence, what, what he's saying is that you can't trust a man who has not experienced the hardness of life, who has not experienced any pain or any disappointment or, or the reality of the side of this world that hurts and frustrates us. But a man of sorrows, someone who has bled, someone who has suffered, they know. They get it. They have a better view of the totality of life. And so therefore, what they say will ring even truer. He knows. So he looks at this book as, yes, Solomon gets it. Because of the pain that he suffered, because of the paths that he's taken that led him just deeper into vexation. It makes him... More trustworthy. Well, Revelation is an apocalyptic book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is one of the wisdom books that God has given us. He's given us five wisdom books to enjoy. Uh, we know Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and they're not—they're written from more of a, a, a historical narrative perspective. So. They're kind of like the author is explaining life's experiences. And that's why we can often relate to the the wisdom book so well. When you look at Proverbs, Proverbs is kind of like a field manual to life. Uh, It tells us that there's a God and He has designed things very specifically. And when you understand His design, why you're here, why trees are here, why creation is here, why the family unit and how government works. When you understand that and you walk in it according to how it works then life will go better for you. You're not going kicking against the goads so to speak. So it tells us how to find wisdom and how to live basically uh, as successfully as possible because you know how life is supposed to work and you fall in line with that. Psalms you know we've gone through not every psalm, but many psalms, that's God's song book. And again, that's a book where poetic people have hammered out the thinking of life, hammered out decisions, and we just jump right on in there with the psalms because the context is life. You don't really even have to know the context of that particular book very well other than who wrote it and the era that it was written in because it's just this everyday life experience, and we get it. And so you'll find the psalmist, say for instance, David, he's even in in the midst of one writing in one psalm, he changes his mind. He's hammering things out. You know, in stanza one, he might be uh, doubting God. Where are you, God? And stanza two, uh, he might be doubting his faith in God. And then, in stanza three, he might be really depressed and feeling hopeless. And then, all of a sudden, in stanza four, what else was I thinking? God's real. He exists. He has this. Why so downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. So we we get that right because that's our lives. I mean, we start. Sometimes we start the day and it's gloomy, and we have to give ourselves pep talks of truth, and bring Scripture into our heads. So these books of wisdom. Uh, benefit us and they're really the most popular books in scripture for the most part. We have the Song of Solomon. Uh, It's a celebration of love and not just spiritual love. It's very, it's a celebration of graphic physical love. And I'll just leave it at that. And then we have the book of Job. Another book of wisdom literature. And Job tells the story of a man of God named Believe it or not, Job. So, it it just gives us his narrative. It gives us his story, and I appreciate Joe Garcia. Many years ago, taught us through, took us through the Book of Job in adult Sunday school. It was just a great study. There. So, if you're not familiar with Job, Job is a man of God. He is incredibly blessed. He is an upright man. He loves the Lord with all of his heart. Everything he puts his hand to, God just blesses him. He has his livestock is is blessed, all of his servants to take care of it. He has a, a big family, lots of you know, lots of kids. Life is just wonderful. And um up in heaven a conversation takes place, and you know, Satan doesn't like things to go well with people, and so there's this conversation that takes place, and he's we're told that. The devil roams around the earth. He's looking for trouble. Who can I tempt? Who can I ruin today? Who can I knock off their equilibrium and and challenge their faith with today? And God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Chandler uh, preached a sermon on that one time and he says, You know, if Job could have just heard that conversation, what was going on there, I'm sure he would have said, Oh no, I'm good. I'm good down here. Just, just move along. Everything's good. Life is great. But it didn't go that way. So in um, Job chapter 1, Satan answered the Lord and he said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Wow, so is that what this man of God is all about? He's just worshiping God and loving on God and obeying Him because he's getting what he wants out of it. Is God a means to an end, as we spoke about, or is God the end? It's interesting that Scripture tells us that Satan believes in God, but not only does he believe in God, but he understands sound theology. Because, you see, what we find here in this example, and I'll tie it into Ecclesiastes shortly, but we find that Satan gets how life works in the sense that he answers to the sovereign God. And we live in a world that doesn't always acknowledge that. Satan, God puts limitations on what Satan can do. And we live in a world where where we're constantly fed this idea of dualism, where, no, out there is, is an equal force of evil and an equal force of good, And we're kind of caught in the middle because there's all this clashing and the world needs to be balanced in this dualism of equal powers and that's what we suffer with. You know, there's up in the heavens the the gods or the forces or the impersonal forces or however you want to look at it are fighting over this and so at any given time, uh, evil could be winning but then then good gets the upper hand and it's winning. And so what we find immediately in here is that According to Scripture, there aren't two equal powers that are fighting back and forth. The lesser power, the created power that God created, the fallen angels, God is sovereign over all of this. And even as great as Satan and his cohorts are, they answer to God plain and simple. They need God's permission. He's the chief. He's the ruler, the king of the universe. No one gets the upper hand on him. God has to give permission. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to Simon Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. So there is, again, what does Satan want to do? He wants to ruin our lives. He wants to create doubt. He wants to frustrate us and lead us away from the Lord. He's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, he allowed Satan to tempt and to test Peter. And Peter was, and Peter denied the Lord. He fell for it hook, line, and sinker. He was the most confident that he would not be the one to do that, and he was the one to do that. He denied him in a different context. But... He comes out the other end stronger. He failed, he repented, he owned it, he comes out stronger, and now Jesus says, you make your brothers stronger. It made him a better apostle, it made him a better leader for the the Lord. So he was wrecked in one sense, but not completely wrecked. He actually was transformed to be holier, more determined than he ever could imagine that he might be. We always want to remember that even when life seems to go from bad to worse and even when we fail that, and, and we feel under the gun or we feel under attack that Satan answers to God. It's not all lost. It's not hopeless when you have evil answering to good. And God is on our side as we were reminded by Jaden this morning. So God in this little story gives the thumbs up to Satan. You go ahead you can take his possessions and so forth, and um, we'll see what happens with that. And sure enough, Job loses it all. He loses his um, livestock, he loses his servants, he loses his family, he loses his barn. Through different, the enemies come and take things, and then natural disasters take all of this. And so, what is now that Satan has had his way with him? What is his response? Very famous words. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would that be your response if you lost everything? Well, yep, it's all gone. Praise God. I mean, what does that speak about his character and his understanding of faith? It turns out that God was not a means to those things, but that he realizes, I'm here to worship God. I'm here to love Him, and I can do that with a lot of things, and I can do that with nothing. I have not lost my God. What a mindset. Do we hold the world loosely and God tightly, or the world tightly and God loosely? So then that wasn't good enough for Satan, and we're almost done here. But he says, skin for skin, you didn't take his health. He still has that. If you take that, he will certainly curse you. And so God says, go ahead, you can inflict him, but you can't kill him. And Satan inflicted him to the max, and he had gross, yucky sores that he had to scrape off himself. He didn't have very good friends. They were constantly after him, telling him that he did things wrong. So he didn't have the approval of man. And I'm sure that his response of faith frustrated Satan that he still worshiped the Lord. And we know for a fact it frustrated his wife because she said, curse God and die. But all he has left is his pitiful life and some might argue his pitiful wife with that kind of attitude. Not much to go on. And here's Job's conclusion again in 13.15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And that is such a die-hard faith and mindset that we, we all will spend our lives trying to attain. Because we want to hold on to even God's gifts. He can take his gifts away from us. And it comes down to what is the most important thing in our lives. Is God just a means? Are we serving Him to get the things that we want? Or is He what we want most? And so when we lose these things, yeah, it hurts. But we're not crushed. We still have the greatest love of our lives. So let's break a little, uh, break a little ground on this book. The words of the preacher, the son of David King in Jerusalem. Book of Wisdom. Who's the preacher? Well, it's Solomon. King David's son. My version says preacher. Uh, the word means leader, speaker of an assembly. So your version might say teacher. And it's I think that's a in the, the as far as the definition of the word preacher fits, but the context of what he brings to us, teacher is a better definition. I mean, or better word, and better yet, even professor. Because what Solomon's going to do is he's going to share experiences experiences with us, and there's times where he's not going to give us answers on purpose because he wants us to wrestle with the realities of the truths of the harshness of life and what it would be like if God did not exist. So like a good professor or a good uh, teacher, he uses uh, the Socratic method where he throws things out there, but he doesn't always give you the answer. you got to struggle through it. I remember going to Bible college, and I was so excited because I just wanted to be told I was just saw myself as a faithful, loyal servant of the Lord. Just tell me what to believe, and I'll believe it. And they didn't always do that. They would present the positions, the facts, and the truth, and then you had to wrestle with that so that you owned it. And you came to the answers yourself. Not that there, weren't, there, were, there were limitations to that, because they believed in truth, but that was the superior way of teaching. I learned much more than just you tell me what to believe and I write it down and memorize it as far as, no, you struggle with it and you wrestle with it in your own life. Is this true or not? Don't just do it because I've told, I told you to do it. And so that, for the most part, is Solomon's approach. He's going to push us to find answers to the dialogue that he brings up in his life. Now, obviously, the... Uh, the teacher, he describes himself as King Solomon. So this is the king of Israel. There has never been a king like him before. He, this, he was the pinnacle of Israel. His reign and rule. They never had it so good. And he was privileged. The king's son. He didn't go to public school. He had private tutors and everything. Everything that he needed or wanted that would enable him to prosper, to be more wise, powerful, whatever, he was given all of these incredible privileges to the point where when he became king, there was absolutely nothing beyond his reach. I mean, he had ships, he had ships coming into his harbor filled with gold from other countries. There was just nothing that he could not do. Nothing beyond his grasp. His, was, his experience was on a level of wealth and power and wisdom that we will never get or understand. Just, it's not going to happen. That's where he is. And this is who is teaching us. A man for whom there's nothing out of his reach. Nothing out of his grasp. Anything he craves or wants or desires, good or bad, he can absolutely get it. And he's going to tell us that he has experienced everything that Middle-earth has to offer. Everything under the sun that there is out there, all the pursuits that man tells us to go after, to feel meaning, to feel purpose, to feel accomplished. He's going to tell us I have done all of that. I did it. I did it well. I did it to the max. I did it uh, in wisdom. I sought wisdom. I sought folly. I was a fool just to see if, okay, maybe that will get me what I want. He exhausts earth's resources and pleasures as much as they possibly can be exhausted. And he fills us, he he throws out all these questions. What does that get you? Okay, you did that, what does that get you? What does that get you? And what did that get you? Did that answer the big questions that you have in life? Did that fill your heart and soul? Tell us. Is there meaning? Does it even really matter the decisions you make or the choices you make? Because I've gone on both sides of the road. I've pursued left and right. And they both took me to the same place and I still have the same answers and I'm still sick to my stomach that I can't grasp the meaning and find the answer that I want under the sun. So he'll force us to reckon with these questions that many philosophers have asked over the ages and they are questions maybe that we have answered before but we'll go through them again. These are questions that we need to answer the deep questions of life. Does it really matter and why? Why do I do what I do? And it will be a good reminder since you most of you already know questions I think are confident in that. So let me just close today by breaking ground on the big question that he asks in verse 3 of the first chapter. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now by... The end of the chapter in 18 he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So in other words, the more I think I need to know more to get the answer, and the more I know, the more miserable I am. And the more I think I need more experiences to get a better grasp or to take myself where I need to be. Just one more experience might do it. And the more experiences I have, the emptier I are the, uh, <laughs> the emptier I am, and I is, and <laughs> and life just is and are meaningless, and it is all vanity. So he comes to these conclusions, no matter what direction he takes. Now he is an accomplished, very very accomplished person. If accomplishment could have taken him to the place of satisfying his intellect and his soul or his spirit, then certainly he would be satisfied. Because he's accomplished all the things that are supposed to make life worth living, right? In this world, we're told or certain, oh man, you got to do this, or you got to have this, or you got to be that. That's what life is really all about. He's a very aggressive in pursuing these things. He's very disciplined when he needs to be. He denies himself when he needs to deny, deny himself. And he gorges himself when he thinks that that's what I need to do. And he's constantly seeking at what we might say the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Oh, it's, by, it's behind this rainbow, or it's the end of this rainbow, or this rainbow. And the world's throwing all of these answers at him. And he's going hard to get them to be happy and fulfilled. And it's very obvious by his eorish words that that is not happening. It is not taking his soul and his being to where he wants to go. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. A lot of times we think, if I had a little more money, I would be happier. If I had a little more experience, if I could just raise my position in my career, if I had a bigger family, there's things in this life that I want. And if I had these things, obviously I would be way more fulfilled than I am. And Solomon is saying, actually... I pursued all of life's pleasures to their max. How many wives and concubines did he have? I mean, he, he just took everything to its max and he's saying, um, that doesn't work either. So the, the more money thing or the more experiences or traveling, if I could just get a different perspective and so forth, that doesn't work either. As a matter of fact, what's the use? What, what did I even really gain from all of my efforts, what do I have to show for it? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That word gain is mentioned ten times in this book and it's very important too. What is gain? It's profit. It's the leftovers. You know about gain and you know about profit. Uh, this, pretty soon this tax season we're going we're gonna to hash out our finances to find out did we even make any money this year? Did we profit anything this year? And that's what you do. You look at all your expenses, look at all the time you put in th- the things, all the, the repairs you had to make and the sweat, the blood and the tears and then you deduct that and you see, did I actually make anything? Okay, just because I drive a company car or fly all over the world for my company doesn't mean I'm actually making money. Or just because I own my bi- own business and, and have these tools or or so forth and these skills doesn't mean I'm actually making money. We could be expending ourselves year after year and not making any money and not profiting at all. So what does it profit? Are the pursuits of your life? Are your dreams and chasing after them? Are they profiting you? Are they bringing you where you really want to go? What effect are they having on your soul and your intellect? Are they indeed making you happier? Or are they just tricking you into thinking well a bigger check balance should be making me happier so I guess I am happier. You know, What is really hitting the spot here? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? Is it worth it or not? He is wrestling with the nuts and bolts of what I'm going to call middle earth. Why bother? Why does it really matter in the big picture? And he says it doesn't. He says it's vain. I've been kind to people. That didn't work. I could be mean to people. still going to die. I haven't changed the world with my actions. He says it's foolish to think that you're actually going to change the world by being such a great per- person or I'm going to invent this and I'm going to be known forever. You might be known for a while. Uh, you, might be, you might get your name on a plaque. You might even get it put in a history book. But the time will come Earth's just going to keep going and the time will come where nobody's going to know you ever existed. And that's the fate of all mankind. So what does it really matter? Though if I gain all this money and then I die and then somebody else gets it and I gained it righteously and yet I leave it to somebody, I have no control over what happens to my possessions. Should I have even saved them? Should I have toiled so much to get these possessions? What really matters? What really changes things? in life does wisdom itself change information is not transformation does wisdom change it if I'm just a little smarter how many times have we told ourselves that if I just knew a little more if I was a little more smart then life would be better then I'd have say a better reputation or I would just feel better about myself but is that the end of all things So these are the questions that we're going to be reckoning with on communion Sundays anyway. This is lighter than Revelation, by the way. And I said Middle Earth, this is hammering things out. And these kind of daily decisions and what we're pursuing and what we're choosing to love and hate in this world is going to make a big difference in the end times and the consummation of all things. So we have an opportunity this morning... To act on what we believe and know is true. To act on what we have claimed is the rightful owner and creator of all things, including our own lives, including our songs and our voices and our words, and that's Christ. And so we have an opportunity to express to Christ in a time of praise. Then we have an opportunity to express our faith in that there is something above the sun as we come together and fellowship with the living, triune... God in the presence of the Holy Spirit as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. May God bless the preaching of His Word and I look forward to worshiping with you.